Welcome back to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous, the internet's number one podcast about buying and investing in small businesses. This week, I have my friend Casey Cutsale on the podcast. I've known Casey for probably five years. We're mutual members of the e-commerce fuel community. Uh, Casey's been in e-commerce for a long time. He owns a business called DIY Parts. Uh, in the aftermarket automotive accessories niche. He also owns a 3PL with three separate locations. So he is neck deep in e-com. So I had him on this week and we discussed uh, a deal that he had under LOI in his niche, what he really loved about it, and then what ultimately caused it to fall apart in diligence. And then we also had him talk about a second deal uh, in the FBA automotive space. And I really appreciated kind of his second level insights on the listing that you wouldn't see on the first read through uh, unless you're in the industry. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Casey Cutsale. Hey, Michael here. Want to talk to you about today's sponsor for the episode, uh, which is cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, so cloud bookkeeping is actually run by my neighbor, Charlie. So I've met him in person and uh, can attest that he's a real human being and a good person. Uh, and what cloud bookkeeping does is offer a full suite of bookkeeping services uh, all in the cloud. Uh, for you around QuickBooks and other technologies that you're using as a small business owner. Uh, so if you're interested in getting the bookkeeping part of running a business off of your plate and focusing on running your business, uh, Charlie and his team are one to call. Um, they can put together a bunch of other stuff in terms of helping you manage and grow your business besides just bookkeeping, um, sophisticated reporting, uh, definitely helping you get your QuickBooks online set up in the right way, uh, and a number of things around payroll as well. So uh, definitely know them and recommend them. If you want to find out more about cloud bookkeeping, um, you can go to their website at cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, reach out to Charlie. I know many of you have uh, and see if he can help you uh, make your running your business easier and more fun by uh, letting them help with a lot of the bookkeeping solutions. So, uh, and when you call, mention this podcast, uh, it would help us uh, and help Charlie know uh, that we're supporting him as well. So thanks a bunch and cloudbookkeeping.com uh, as the sponsor for today's episode. Casey, it is great to have you on Acquisitions Anonymous. We've been friends for a little while, met in person several times, mutual friends uh, through e-commerce fuel. Um, great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so if you could tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, the businesses you own, um, I think that'd be great. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so I have been in e-commerce for 17 years. Um, I started out on eBay and marketplaces. So that's one of my personal areas of expertise. Um, another area of expertise is logistics. I own a three location 3PL. It's a smaller 3PL, but we cater to e-commerce. Um, so my e-commerce businesses specialize in uh, automotive is, is our focus. Um, we have several different small companies in e-commerce, uh, automotive, a few different brands. Um, and yeah, we were looking to add to our, our structure and kind of build out um, Building brands is, is difficult, so I wanted to try my hand at purchasing one uh, this time around. Okay, so you got expertise in logistics. You said your 3PL has three different locations, so you're nationwide? Correct, yeah. Uh, East Coast, North Carolina, uh, Central is Texas, and then West Coast is California. Okay, cool. So automotive was a space you knew well, you know, from other brands that you'd had, you know, earlier in your career. You decided that you wanted to buy another, another automotive accessories brand. Um, you know, that's something we're going to talk about today. Okay, cool. So Casey, you brought a deal today that you actually not only looked at, but got under LOI. 
and it ultimately fell apart. And we're going to get into kind of what you liked about it in the first place, why you went under LOI and kind of what happened uh, that made the deal fall apart. So if you're on YouTube, we'll put it up on the screen. Otherwise, I'll read it now. So this is a 16-year-old auto parts business that was founded in 2005. It continues to grow in revenue year over year and has done 6.6 .6 million in sales in the trailing 12 months. The focus is on gas-charged lift supports. I'm going to need you to tell me what that is later. <laughs> the products that are used in automotive vehicles, RVs, campers, boats, toolboxes, kitchen cabinets, and more. With a vast selection of products, this company is able to meet the high demand for lift supports. This has contributed to a 10% revenue and 36% SDE growth in the trailing 12 months. The business has diversified revenue channels with Amazon at 73%, their website at 19%, eBay at 6% and Walmart at 2%. Uh, the seller would like to retire and now is the ideal time for a new owner, Casey, to take over and continue the business's history of growth. The large opportunities for a new owner exist in improving the long-standing, but parentheses, not the most up-to-date online sales channels. And this includes advertising on Amazon, which is currently not being done, and utilizing FBA for more of the business's Amazon listings, FBA being fulfillment by Amazon. The current owner is comfortable with FBM and has not considered using FBA, meaning probably for most of the parts, it is not prime eligible. It says the business is currently SBA pre-qualified for a $2 million SBA loan. So running through the financials, the gross revenue is 6.6 .6 million. The discretionary earnings are 750,000 on that 6.6 .6 million. So a little over 10%, maybe you know 15% margin. Their inventory is plus or minus $850,000. It is SBA eligible, and that works out to an asking price multiple of 3.76x. So Casey, tell us what you thought you know, when you first read this, what got you interested in the deal? Yeah, so there was a lot to like. Um, first of all, let's talk about what a lift support is. Um, these are oftentimes called struts and they're, they go on hoods and trunks. So there will be one on each side of the hood or the trunk. Um, and it helps either raise or slowly lower. It holds it in position while you're working on your vehicle or putting something in your trunk. Um, so it's a, we call this a hard part. Uh, this is something that gets replaced when you need it. Uh, so when they go bad, and this is not something that uh, you would want to go for a very long time. So you would want to replace it right away. So it has a really high conversion uh, aspect to it. Um, so yeah, a lot to like a uh, 16 year old business. That's fantastic. Uh, seems like so many businesses you see are uh, newer and uh, consistent growth. Um, as we got into the business, that was further confirmed. Very, very good growth. Um, uh, the thing that I really liked the most about this, um, which spoke to my area of expertise, was the Amazon. Uh, things that it was the most of their business, but they were not tapping into some of the things that make Amazon businesses really successful, namely FBA or and or marketing. Um, and yeah, the further we got into it, I saw that they weren't doing that and saw tremendous opportunity uh, with that. So yeah, a lot to like on the surface. So was it, did they make their own gas charge struts or were they a reseller of other brands? They were, they do both. Uh, so they're not a manufacturer. They probably started out 16 years ago reselling third-party brands. And then over that 16 years transitioned to private labeling and building their own brand. Um, 
at, at least for the last eight years or so, their private label brand was the majority of, of their business, um, which is a good thing. That's a great thing. Um, so they, so they've got solid growth. They've got a, their own private label brand. They've got really good penetration on Amazon, but they're really not pulling any of the levers that work on Amazon. They're not prime eligible. They're not doing Amazon advertising. Um, so I can see how you said, you know, man, there's a lot of upside for me here in this deal. Um, so I, I assume you, you did a fair bit of diligence uh, and they got the business under LOI. By the time you got it under LOI, uh, had you learned anything that gave you pause or were you were you pretty gung-ho pre-LOI? Pre-LOI, I would say pretty gung-ho. Um, not too much came up that was a red flag. Um, probably the only thing that I learned of prior to LOI was how that it was a family business and that um, the family was, there were multiple family members, the team was small, so the family made up a large percentage of the team and made up all of the leadership team. So I don't know how everybody feels about that, but that can be both a good thing and a bad thing. Um, we, As we got into it further, I felt like it was a good thing, got to know them uh, and felt really good about it. But that was a little nerve wracking at first. So let, let me zoom in on that because I would think that is so much of a bad thing. I would walk instantly because the family is tied into the at the manage, is the management team. The family's about to get a big check and become totally disincentivized. And my experience has been typically even when you have friends or family, when one of them leaves, it all the other ones leave too within six months. Um, so how did you get comfortable with that? What I learned was that the family wanted to continue. And throughout many conversations, it, it was apparent that that was the mission. They Maybe they would have gotten some kickback, but frankly, it was it was not the motive. They they needed to continue in the business. They they wanted to. Uh, the uh, business is in a very expensive location to live, so they were the family was not going to retire on this selling. So I I did firmly believe uh, that they wanted to continue, and it was going to be uh, financially a, a good choice for them and for the company to. Okay. So they, cause they were just doing the math on the multiple, you know, you don't have to close, but you bid what you bid, but the asking bid was about 3 million bucks. Seems like a little, right. little under 3 million bucks. So uh, I'm going to assume it was probably you know, California, New York, one of these high cost of living spots. While $3 million is a lot of money, you know, it's probably not never work again money, especially yeah. split amongst a couple people. Yeah. And I don't know if this executive summary said it or not, but the owner wanted to retire and, uh, that was further confirmed. He was of age to retire, has had many successful businesses, has been doing this one a long time. He, he wants to retire. And the way it was worded, the family was not in a position to take this risk on financially and buy it out from him. So this was the alternative. Okay. And then how did you get comfortable that the family then, you know, maybe they wanted to buy it from him, but they didn't have the financial wherewithal. Casey swoops in. Hey, I'm, I'm your new deep pocketed uncle, Casey, uh, do everything I say, you know, how'd you get comfortable with that? It, it took a while. Um, and, and a lot of conversations again, to, to make sure that they were committed to the business. Um, we, we didn't have any conversations about, Hey, why are you not buying this business? I, I kind of left that alone. I didn't feel like that was my business to, to pry into why this wasn't working out a different way. Maybe they just didn't want the risk. Um, 
it is very risky. They were they are selling the business at a peak time, and yeah, maybe maybe they f- were scared of what they could do as a, a business operator because, as we know, operating a business and growing one and simply being a, a part of the leadership is very different. So I felt comfortable with it after many conversations. Okay, so you got comfortable with it. You submitted your LOI. It was accepted. Um, so now you've got 60 to 90 days to do exclusive due diligence. What did you start pressing on first? So I started looking at what I know, which is obviously the P&L, but specifically digging into their Amazon account, uh, reviewing the products, um, looking at their supply chain and the logistics, things that I knew. And yeah, things were both, things actually looked better than I expected. I, I saw more opportunity. I saw more opportunity than I was kind of even banking on, which was which was great to see. Um, I think there's a lot of potential with this business even still. Um, but yeah, as time went on, I I started to see some things. The first thing I saw was revenue wasn't growing ten percent um, year over year. Maybe it was if you were looking at it on an annualized basis, but on a month to month, which I look at numbers pretty closely, it was actually flat. And throughout due diligence, um, it started to decrease. So that was concerning. Um, There were some other things that cropped up uh, that were concerning too, but that was the first. So before we get into the other things, were you able to, it's, it's interesting that the business started to roll over right as soon as they basically listed it for sale. Were you able to put your finger on why that happened? I think so. Um, so when I saw that, I was also very skeptical and wondered, oh, are they trying to pull one over on me and, and dump this thing before the wheels fall off? Um, that did not happen. What I learned is that the operator, the owner, simply didn't pay close attention to the financials. Um, they were two months delayed and the time period from when this um, executive summary was built and everything was submitted, there were three months that lapsed uh, from from when I looked at it and when we became under LOI. So five months had passed and that allowed for the time for things to start falling apart. Uh, they did say that one of the things they chose to do was order less inventory uh, to prepare for, for the sale. Yeah, so so that came back to to bite them. I didn't go so far as to connect the dots if that was the whole story, um, but that was that was part of it. Um, I did see where average order value increase and cost of goods were going up. So what I'm guessing another contributing factor is, hey, we have to raise our prices to maintain margin, and the market was not receptive to these these price increases. Um, there are, there are China competitors for this product. Uh, there are some name brands out there that maybe are more expensive. They kind of fall in between. Um, so yeah, the gap was widening. Perhaps their pricing was no longer the right market fit for some of these part numbers. Okay. So, and this was uh, just so people know, what time frame was this? The time frame like what dates? of year like, or was it, was it earlier this year when, when supply chain, they might've been getting cost increases? Yeah, so they they listed the business for sale in Q4 of 2021, and we were under LOI 
right at the end of the year. And then, yes, um, really got into it. The, the numbers really started decreasing January, February of 22. Okay. So a combination of maybe took their eye off the ball a little bit because they, they didn't have good financial reporting and they figured, hey, we're selling this business. I'm not going to pay attention. It seems like they classically tried to bleed the balance sheet for cash. You know, hey, why am I going to order more inventory if Casey's just going to get it? Um, which, by the way, comes back to uh, my my soapbox for working capital adjustments in small deals, which which is a rat hole we don't have to go down again. But like this is just such classic seller behavior to want to leave you with essentially zero inventory, uh, and then you as the buyer have to say, you know, not like I'm not buying them separately. Like the the inventory, the working capital is the blood of this body that keeps it working. And so then, you know, if I immediately have to stroke a check for half a million dollars of inventory on day one, or worse, I'm not gonna be able to hit my sales goal because I'm out of inventory because of lead times, I need to take that out of purchase price. Um, so, I mean, that is like the number one dirty seller trick uh, that you should be on, on the lookout for. It seems like these guys were trying it too. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't think it was intentional that they, the, the decision to go light on inventory obviously was intentional. They, they said it was. Um, but I, I genuinely don't think that they were doing anything to make this deal not to be something other than it was on the surface. Like a lot of things, almost everything checked out. Like these were these were good people and I hate it fell apart like it did. OK, yeah. So, you know, maybe not malicious, but, you know, sometimes they just go, hey, I'm not going to do it. You know, they don't, they don't realize that they're trying, they're not trying to screw you. They just say, why would I, I don't want to cut this check. I'm not going to see any money back. Yeah. Just a bad decision that in the short term seems like a good thing, but in the long term was not a good thing. Yeah. So it seems like that was sort of the first thing that gave you pause that the sales were starting to roll over. They were a little light on inventory. I assume it went downhill from there. What happened next? So another big thing that happened in diligence um, was one of the third-party brands that, uh, so let me, let me back up. The, so the third-party brands, they still sell those. Um, those third-party brands and part numbers were part of their R&D process. So they use the data from those and sales numbers to then go and create their own. Makes sense. Seems like a fine strategy. Um, so what I learned was that the third-party brands made up more of the sales than what I had hoped. Uh, third-party brands is going to be lower margin, less control. I didn't love that. In due diligence, one of the brands that made up 25% of their total revenue had a overnight 44% cost of goods increase. Ooh. No notice, phone call, hey, this is happening. Game 2022, changer. baby. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. So they they were, again, just to speak to their character, they, they informed me immediately. They said, obviously, this is not something we could have predicted, but this happened. And this is exactly why I didn't like the third party brand uh, portion of the business, because you don't control that. Things can change. I've personally had third party brands. That's what I did in the beginning and transition, just like this company. Um, I have had brands compete against me, cut me off, all kinds of, of things. You just can't subject yourself to third-party brands that much. Yeah, you don't, you don't have, you don't control your own destiny at all. You, you will be subservient to their business strategies. Yeah. So 
in due diligence, I'm seeing a decrease in sales. Um, it actually got to a point where sales were 10 to 20% down in the final days um, as far as year over year numbers. Now we have a 44% cost of goods increase that is going to literally take probably three months to play out. Like they have some inventory. So when do they raise those prices? Is the market going to be receptive to that? Like that is just a huge mystery box. Like they could be looking at a 25% revenue decrease if, if it's so expensive that they can't continue. So that, that was very Did scary. you do a model? So they were doing about 750,000 of SDE, this 44% price increase on one of their largest inputs. What was that going to take, hit them on the bottom line? Did you do that math? If they didn't raise their prices? I, I did not. Um, so we did not get into a deep financial review. Um, I had my accounting firm lined up, ready to do an audit of, of sorts or a review um, and start to get some of this more specific vendor cost of goods information. We did not get that far um, because of this and the other things I saw. We kept our conversation very open and said, hey, what are we going to do? I, I can't pay you this for what I'm seeing. Um, we need to either go back to the table, renegotiate, we can extend due diligence, give you a chance to right the ship, or I, I guess you, we have to walk away mutually, uh, which is ultimately. Yeah. So, so there wasn't necessarily one thing. It was just a series of body blows. And then you eventually had to go to them and say, look, guys, I either need a huge purchase price reduction or, or did you say that? Or did you say there's no price at which I'm willing to do this DLC later? So that, that, that was the hard thing because I saw so much opportunity with their brand and what I could apply to the business and my company. Like I still wanted to do it, but being financially disciplined, I could not do it on the terms that we had originally agreed to. But I'm not the kind of person to say, hey, here's the new price, take it or leave it. I said, what do you want to do? Like I, I, I'm still interested, but it, it can't be at this price. So. What, what are we doing? And they ultimately said what? They said, we're going to pull the listing. Uh, we, we think there's too much here to fix in a short period of time. And, and that's what they did. And, and we, we've kept in touch. Um, and I am still interested in the business if it comes back to the market. Okay. So I think that's a, a really interesting point to make, which is that when a deal falls apart, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's bad blood or that, you know, anybody misrepresented anything or that it won't get done in the future. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really impressed with the way you handled it where, I mean, who knows? I mean, I'm sure the, your, your optimal outcome would be over the next six months, they fix all these things and they call you back and the business is healthy and you have the opportunity to buy it. Right. Absolutely. I'd, I'd be thrilled with that. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I think it, it really goes to, you know, don't burn bridges in this industry. You know, a lot of a lot of deals. I mean, we may have you back in the podcast next year and you'll talk about this deal died three times and I finally got it done. Right. Um, never you know. Just never know. Never know. Yeah. Um, was there anything else that you kind of took away from this process that will be useful to you in, in pursuing future deals? So something else that was that I kind of saw a different perspective on was how they operate their business. Um, they they chose to go heavily with technology, um, so they had a pretty hefty technology budget. 
a lot of software. And so their, their strategy was to manage um, with a few key employees, this entire business with uh, technology and, and, and software. Um, it, it showed me a little of my shortcomings that how little I actually had. That's great for your bottom line, but it really hurts for, for growth. Um, so that's something that I chose to implement in mine. I, I got a, let's call it an out of the box ERP um, that we're, we're working on, not something that's fully custom like they had. They had some custom NetSuite and some other things that I didn't really want to take on. Um, so yeah, that, that was interesting to see how they chose to do it. Uh, something I learned, uh, I felt like they were probably a little understaffed with their, their team. Um, even even the leadership said, yeah, we, we could use a couple more people to keep up with certain demand. The, the owners are still going out in the warehouse and covering for employees that are out sick or things like that. So that, that has to change in a six and a half million dollar business. Yeah, it's interesting when you do add-ons. Right. I mean, because this you were already in this space, you were you were pretty familiar with how the ops could or should work, how much just how much you can learn about your own business by doing diligence on another one. And not even just, you know, not even like, you know, stealing secrets or competitive stuff, but just, damn, look, an ERP really helps them. Maybe I should have an ERP, you know, like you, you get to see the strengths and weaknesses of another business um, and it can it can make you a better business just just by looking at another one. Yeah, I've, I've also found conversely, sometimes when you're on the sell side, um, as you put together the materials on the business and market it, it can make you a better business, even if you never sell it. Right. Because it, it makes you step back, analyze what you're good at, what you're weak at, where you need to improve, you know, what all your opportunities are. And by the end of the process, you can go, damn, I don't want to sell this thing at all. Right. <laughs> yep. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, we do have another deal. Anything else you want to hit on this one before we move on to the next one? Okay, awesome. Um, so we picked this other deal because it is right in your wheelhouse, uh, automotive accessories. I'm going to put it on the screen for the YouTubers. Um, so this business is an Amazon FBA auto accessories products business. Um, this is actually, Casey, are both, this is in our backyard. It says it's in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, which is where I am in Charlotte. Um, and I guess, are you technically Mecklenburg or... Uh, no, I'm closer to Greensboro. That would be Guilford County. Okay. Yep. So Casey and I are about, you know, two hours away by car um, here in North Carolina. Um, so this business uh, is an FBA auto accessories products business. It does $2.5 million of revenue and $1.1 million of cash flow. Very nice margins. They are asking $5.2 million for it. So nearly five times, 4.75 times or so. Uh, it was established in 2012. Uh, so 10 years old, it has three employees. Um, again, they want 5.2 million for it. Um, so here's a description. This listing is an Amazon FBA business selling its trademark brand auto accessories. The company is part of Amazon brand registry. Uh, it features Amazon's choice products. Its top selling SKU has a 4.7 star rating across 5,000 reviews. Uh, the ASINs associated with the account receive automatic nomination for deal of the days. Uh, and the seller also receives information on Amazon events and promo campaigns. Basically, this means they've been on Amazon for a long time and they're part of all the beta programs. 
Uh, products and packaging are manufactured in China. Additional parts are added and packaged in the USA at the seller's warehouse. And then all products are labeled and shipped from the seller's warehouse to the Amazon FBA warehouses. So it sounds like they've got sort of an assembly slash light manufacturing step in their own facility, but most of the products are made in China and they kind of step, step them through into FBA through their own warehouse. Seller spends an average of 30 hours a week managing inventory and delegating tasks to the employees. There are three staff, which include an account manager and two people handling packing. So I imagine, you know, all the staff here are pretty much ops staff. You know, if there's three employees and two of them are handling packing, uh, it seems like the seller here is really the, the FBA e-com guy. Um, it says the staff are willing to stick around. Uh, the key benefits, <laughs> year over year growth, excellent margins, uh, top seller, great reviews. Um, it says, you know, the business has the ability to, to produce unique and higher quality products. Then it's competitors, leads to great profit margins, um, all, you know, all sorts of generic things. Improve the marketing, launch additional related products, sell products on alternative channels. Um, a couple other interesting things. Uh, it says the property is owned. So I would think this means the seller owns his own building and you would have to negotiate some sort of lease back uh, with him. So if that were not in the PL, you would need to adjust that pro prospective pro forma rent uh, into the PL. Um, and it also says, <laughs> my favorite, the seller is selling to pursue other interests. Um, so I would definitely want to dig in on that as to what exactly interests those are. And does is this just code for uh, I'm burned out, which might be okay, happens all the time. Or is this code for, you know, I'm selling at the top. I've had a great two years. You know, I would really dig in on on why now. What So Casey, you're in the automotive parts space. You know, you sell a lot on Amazon. What's kind of your take on this category and this business generally? Yeah, so my first question is what type of auto accessories? So there are universal accessories that can be used in any vehicle. And then there's vehicle specific accessories like Jeep Wranglers are a popular vehicle to upfit with all these specific things, but they're designed to only work on Jeep Wranglers because it has this particular fit. Um, so there's pros and cons to both, uh, but that would be the first thing I would look at. What type of accessories are we, we talking about here? Um, it would probably be better if they were vehicle specific, if they were niche, really niche, and they have this brand that they've built and they are at least a, a front runner in their, their category. That, that would be So ideal. why, why Something, is that better? Because that's a much smaller market, right? It it seems like it, um, but you can be pretty easily if you if you know what you're doing and you know the product, you know the market. Maybe you're an enthusiast yourself. You can be a big fish in a little pond. Whereas on Amazon, the the big pond China product can flood that if it's a universal product, if, especially if there's no unique aspects to it. They they didn't mention anything about patents or unique designs or that being a part of the process. So my guess is. This is a private labeler and having a brand in a niche would be the ideal solution. Because you can kind of fly under the radar versus in your ear of this huge commodified market, you know, your supplier is going to be on Amazon. Yeah. And, and to the customer base, like these, these enthusiasts for all kinds of different vehicles, they, most of them probably don't want just unbranded China, whatever. Like they, they care about their vehicle. They're enthusiasts. They want to use something that the community is using. 
And, and even though that's not really what Amazon is specifically known for, you know, it, it does still have some of that effect. You can, you can see a China seller in product a mile away in most occasions. So, yeah. So I think that would be ideal, but hard to say what that actually is. So one thing I noticed is that they've got 40% net margins, right? They're doing 2.5 million in sales, 2.6 million in sales, and they got 1.1, 1.2 million of cash flow. Um, that to me says that this is some sort of private label brand and they're pricing it significantly above you kind of where the commodity price in the category is. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, and that could be good and bad. <laughs> um, that could be good for rolling out new products. Um, because if you have a trusted brand, you're probably going to continue that, that margin and, have some brand loyalty. So that, that sounds great. Um, but yeah, other competition coming into the market uh, could, could spell a disaster for that being undercut. So surveying the competition in this deal would be absolutely important to do. Yeah. You have to understand the sustainability of that margin. Uh, Cause that's, yeah. Yeah. My, my gut take on all of the, everything that we're seeing here is that this person has done a really good job in optimizing this business in, in this size. I don't see a whole lot here that excites me about potential opportunity. Like you said, the growth and expansion, it's all generic stuff. They they've clearly focused on making this business as profitable as it can be, which is a good thing, a good thing for them. But as a purchaser, I want to add value. I don't see a whole lot here. The The thing that I get most excited about was the middle paragraph about uh, that you pointed out about products are made overseas, brought here, but there's some type of manufacturing assembly or labeling done here. Um, I would like to understand that a little more. Maybe that's a good defensible thing for their brand. Um, what are they doing to that product, if anything, that makes it special above others? That, that could be another area to focus on. Yep, I agree. That was the most interesting to me too, because if you are selling at a huge gross margin, let, I mean, let's just assume they're taking something off the boat from China, slapping their brand on it and just marking it up huge. Eventually, competition is going to come into that market, right? And compress your margin. Unless you're touching it or kidding it or doing something to it, because there's, there's such thing as like a pain in the ass mode. Right. Especially on Amazon, where like so much of the Amazon competition is folks metaphorically in their mom's basement. Right. Who want to run this like Internet money machine and they don't want to ever touch the inventory and and they want to drop ship it straight from China and FBA and all that stuff. Right. So if you are willing to endure some of the pain in the ass, like it's got the, the only way to compete with you is that, you know, maybe whatever the prep is, China won't do it. Or you've got to combine it with some made in the USA parts in your own facility. You got to employ, in this case, this business employs three people, like full time. They've got a warehouse. There's a lot of prospective Amazon sellers would be competitors that would just go, "Nah, I'll find something else." Right? Yep. So I yeah. Yeah. Barrier to barrier to entry is is a big factor. Auto parts in general already have a fairly high barrier to entry. There's with many auto parts, there is vehicle specific data. So there's this whole subset of data you have to manage to help customers find what it is they need. Uh, it's There's a lot of part numbers oftentimes. 
there it doesn't say how many products are in this company accessories is probably not a ton um the one that i was looking at purchasing it was thousands it, it was a lot like the barrier to entry <laughs> even if somebody looked at that business and then thought oh i'm gonna go do that on my own you it would take you years like you're so far behind at that point it, it would be foolish to even try is that mostly it. like fitment data because there's all these different makes models years and you got to have SKUs for all those and you got to key it into amazon so it knows which SKU fit that's the, the left right exactly and it updates no less than twice twice a year as new vehicles are produced then they age and start to become into the market for you um, aftermarket parts so yeah there's this whole maintenance program like if you build out more than a few products you have to have a team to do it whereas a lot of small private label businesses you can you can run a long time on a single operator but yep. not 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 auto parts so speaking of a single operator i liked your point about how optimized you think this business must be so they're doing two and a half million of sales right over a million of sde they've got the owner of course but then you got three staff which is an account manager and two persons handling packing. So to me, this smells like what uh, Brent Buescher would call a hustler with help, right? Like, <laughs> you know, everything here is running through the owner. Um, so that's going to be tough for two reasons. One, you, the new owner of this business, are going to have to be as good a hustler as that guy, which means as, as Casey just described, there's a serious learning curve in, in this industry and, and many others. So you've got to not only come up the auto parts learning curve, I'm sure this guy's managing all their data, but the Amazon learning curve. I mean, this is a pure FBA business and I bet that guy who runs it, I bet when it says pursuing other interests, I bet he's got three other FBA brands, right? Like I bet he is a ninja, right? And you're gonna have to get that good too. So stepping in and replace those shoes is no joke. Yeah, very possible. That's how I operate. <laughs> I have multiple brands, multiple companies. Uh, we are getting to the point where I need to hire people to take over some of this this growth, make it the business, not just about me. But yes, I see that happening very much in in this business. Um, I'm shocked that with as much FBA, we don't know exactly how much, but it's claimed that it's all FBA or close to it. I'm going to guess it's mostly. They still have two persons handling packaging. That's a lot of assembly and kidding to not be doing fulfillment as well. Maybe they dabble on some other channels, but they don't ever talk about it. So it's probably minimal. So yeah, they're, they're doing something that maybe you need there. A lot of touch there, for sure. You get two full-time people's worth of touch there. Yep. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a lot. The other thing I thought was really valuable about your point about how optimized this is, is let's even say, you know, you as a buyer can buy this, become as good of a hustler as the owner you just bought out. To scale it now, you're probably fully saturated, right? So to scale it, you're going to quickly need a general manager. You're going to need an Amazon marketing person. You're going to, you're going to start needing more overhead, right? Because up until this point, sort of the, the owner role is catching the fractional Amazon manager, general manager, HR manager, warehouse manager, right? He's doing all these fractional roles, but soon it's going to expand beyond one person. So this is sort of the best the margin will ever be from a, from an SGNA scalability. So you kind of, you're, this business is about to enter sort of an, a negative scale period, right? In its growth where margin is going to get worse. And then once you put that infrastructure in, 
The next leg of scale, you do get true economies of scale and you leverage that fixed cost and margins get better. But for me, I think looking at this, to double this business from here, you're going to need to add several heads that are actually expensive, more managerial heads. Uh, and I would model some model that in. You'll see probably expected margin compression from the next leg of growth. Absolutely. Uh, I agree. To double this business, you're going to have to work 60 hours a week, not his 30. And you're going to make the same or slightly less over however long that, that takes you. Yeah. There's, there's not a lot of meat left on this bone. So hats off to the seller, um, but buyers, be careful. Yeah. Well, I, I would say very often when you see a seller selling at this phase, it's because they don't want to do the next leg, right? Which is a whole different skill set, like hiring middle management, training them, putting in all the systems, probably putting in EOS or something like that, that we've talked about a lot about in this podcast, taking that next leg up. A lot of founders slash hustlers say, I don't want to do that, man. I want someone else to do that. And it's not necessarily malicious because they realize it's going to be expensive. It's more just, they don't want to do it. And they would rather sell, you know, maybe take something else from zero to a million in SDE and let someone else deal with the next leg of scale. So I actually do see this a lot at this size of business. Yeah. And with accessories, your only option is to add new accessories or to add new channels. You There is no lifetime value for the products themselves. There could be some loyalty value with the brand, but yeah, this is, this is a slow and arduous build if you maintain this course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So interesting stuff here. I mean, I don't think we hate this deal. I think there's just a lot to kind of diligence and potentially price in. Uh, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. I think there is a right buyer out there. Maybe somebody that is in this category already it would be nice to know on the surface what that category is. Is it niche? Is it general? But maybe it could be an overlay onto what you're already doing and level up that to, to find some new growth. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Well, Casey, it was it was really cool to have you on to hear about your expertise in the automotive industry, the 3PL industry, you know, and, and the deal that you pursued, hopefully for your sake and the seller's sake. I would love to have you back on uh, if, this, if that deal does come back around, come back to life. Um, so to kind of wrap up here, you know, where can people find you on the Internet? You know, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, this, this time is yours. Uh, we'll keep it simple. Uh, at Casey Cutsell, probably on Twitter would be a good place. Um, CaseyCutsale at gmail.com is my email if somebody wants to reach out. Oh, all right. Just drop in Casey's inbox if you want to chat uh, FBA or auto parts. Uh, thanks a lot for being here, Casey. It was great to see you. Thank you.